you dream of a classroom where learning is natural? Can we inspire students to lifelong learning? What exactly is the purpose of an education? Inspiring students to be curious, independent, creative, innovative, deep thinking, confident, proactive, collaborative, determined, educated. Rise to the challenge of changing the world. This is teaching. This is learning. This is who we are. Welcome to the Tabletop Inventing Podcast. Must you be technically inclined to have a career in science and engineering? Can something as simple as a dragonfly change the course of a person's career? And how soon is NASA planning to have astronauts on Mars? <laughs> Join us today for a fascinating discussion about science and technology from the perspective of a science communicator. I was in New York City, walking down the street on the Upper West Side, and on the sidewalk, in the middle of this intense urban environment, was this beautiful blue-green dragonfly. I was so intrigued by this dragonfly that just happened to be parked in the middle of the sidewalk. No one had stepped on it. It was alive. And I studied it and contemplated it and wondered about it. And the next bookstore I came upon, I walked in and I just bought a field guide on insects. This is the podcast where we discuss curiosity and innovation for teenagers. I can't wait to introduce you to Sarah. Today, she and I will be discussing the path we take to our ultimate career. Often, when students finish college to enter the workforce, there's a bit of a haze as they begin choosing where they'll work. This confusion is normal if they've never taken the time to actually understand themselves. Now, I'm not here to suggest that teens cannot become deeply self-aware. I'm just pointing out that the education they receive is often not concerned with helping them learn about themselves, but rather with understanding the world around them. As a result, the path to a career is often circuitous after college. I believe that more exposure to the career world and more reflection are the keys to having an earlier revelation of one's loves and passions as it regards a choice of careers. In fact, starting in January, I'll be leading an exclusive charter group of teens through this process to jumpstart their career exploration early. If you know a freshman or a sophomore willing to push themselves, explore themselves, and grow more than anyone they know, send me an email at stevecurdy at ttinvent.com. That's S-T-E-V-E-K-U-R-T-I at T-T-I-N-V-E-N-T dot com. And mention RIF. Sarah Marcotte is a science and engineering communicator. She began her career in museums with art history, but through a bizarre experience on a New York sidewalk, she fell in love with science and engineering, subjects she'd never even given a second glance in high school. Join me as we follow Sarah's path to an exciting career. My guest today is Sarah Marcotte. Sarah describes herself as a science educator. Uh, she's been a science educator for about 20 years, uh, working in different science environments, specifically bringing science to the public. Uh, she's been a museum educator. She's worked at the California Institute of Technology, NASA, and other places. She's got a couple of master's degrees, and very curiously, Sarah has a fly named after her. Sarah, tell us about that story about the fly. That's How do you get a fly named after you? Well, when I worked at the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County, I started there as an educator in the insect zoo. 
and I would bring various arthropods, which are insects and their relatives, out to schools and tell people about, uh, try and demystify uh, these invertebrates or arthropods as we brought millipedes and a tarantula and scorpions out to elementary schools. Through that work in the insect zoo, I got to know the entomologist at the Natural History Museum. And actually, when I was getting my degree in learning technologies, I did a project where I could go in the field with this entomologist, collect specimens for the museum's collection and for his research, and do a project about how I would use technology to connect scientists out in the field with students in classrooms or people in museums, members of the public in museums. Now, this particular entomologist collects uh, very tiny little flies in this family called Foridae. These particular ones are parasitic flies that lay their eggs inside the heads of bees and ants, and they're called bee-killing flies, and they parasitize bees and sometimes ants. And um, the fly is so tiny, and they discover so many new species every year because it's a obscure little fly from the cloud forests in Bolivia that um, because I was on that expedition, he named one of the flies after me, after my maiden name. So Melilonka Thompsonae is named after me. I'm very proud of that. I have never thought about that and not being uh, closely related to uh, any biologist close enough to go on any expeditions. I never thought about that, but I guess there's probably lots of names out there that uh, have to be invented. And you are the first person I have ever met that has an insect or an animal named after them. How well, I hope I'm not up? the last. <laughs> <laughs> How did you end up in science education? Well, I had a bit of a different path to it. When I was in middle school and high school, it was not easy for me. It came pretty hard. And my family is very, very humanities strong family. So my father is a lawyer, my mother was an arts administrator, my sister was always very interested in history. I really did not have uh, strong role models or any family emphasis on science and science learning. We are a very, very verbal family. So I didn't really, uh, first of all, have kind of an immersion in going and choosing our entertainment activities, for example, to go to science museums. And just the way it was taught in traditional school did not connect with me at all. And only in my adult life did I realize that I loved science. I had a passion for the natural world. My favorite activities would be just going out in nature and flipping over rotten logs and seeing what I could find underneath. And that as an adult, I had to sort of find my way back to it. That is one piece of advice that I give to young people. If you're not connecting with it now in the school setting, that does not mean it's something you should give up on because I came to it later in my life, and it has been the best decision I've ever made. It's, it's been a real passion for me. And one thing I did realize as an adult is that I learn best by being immersed in environments where I'm surrounded with smart, interesting, passionate people, and I absorb from people around me. I'm not the person who, if I get a new piece of technology, I'm going to open up the manual and read the manual and figure it out. I'm going to go and ask someone to talk about it and play with it and learn from a smarter person. That's just sort of my learning style. You know, I I found that I love being around the people at NASA, at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, at the California Institute of Technology. It is the most stimulating environment. You should always surround yourself with people that are smarter than you. Well, that is excellent advice. I don't know if I've ever had anyone on our podcast specifically say that, 
When did you first realize that that was important to surround yourself with people who knew more than you who could uh, feed that? Well, when I was in a second graduate degree that I got in about 2002 and 2003, and I spent a lot of time reflecting on my personal learning style and realized that the reason why I was choosing environments sort of work my background is that I wanted to learn from the people around me. I'm a very social, very verbal person, so I love asking other people about what they're doing, and I'm not afraid to seem like I don't know something and that I could learn from someone else. I, I think I approach people with an interest in what they're doing and an open mind, open heart sort of thing. So I, I realized that probably in my 30s, <laughs> that, that the reason why I have gone to these environments, even though in school I struggled in science, you know, I realized it in my 30s. Like, oh, that's what I was doing, is that, you know, I, I want to absorb from the people around me. And also the kind of environments I've chosen have been all extremely different. And I think I bore a little bit easily. And so I've been able to be exposed to many, many different kinds of people and kinds of science throughout my career. So I have always been challenged to go to the next level of learning. When I worked at the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County, I had to learn all about entomology. I knew nothing about that before. And as I've been at NASA, I've learned about planetary science and physics and astrophysics. And I've absorbed all sorts of things from people who are you know, studying black holes. I mean, it's just fascinating that there are people out there that study black holes, and then I could perhaps chit-chat with them and learn a little something more. As I was listening to you talk about that, I'm, I was curious, What was there a specific time in your educational journey or in the, your adult life that you remember getting that spark that said science is interesting? Where did that shift happen for you? Do you remember? I can think of a very, very specific instance which propelled my entire career, and it's very strange and random, and it was powerful to me because I can't believe I can remember it this many years later. I was in New York City walking down the street on the Upper West Side. It, this would have been in 1993, around there, walking down the street, Upper West Side, and on the sidewalk in the middle of this intense urban environment, upon the sidewalk was this beautiful blue-green dragonfly like a regular huge dragonfly that you'd see in a pond somewhere. And I was so intrigued by this dragonfly that just happened to be parked in the middle of the sidewalk. No one had stepped on it. It was alive. And I studied it and contemplated it and wondered about it. And the next bookstore I came upon, I walked in and I just bought a field guide on insects and was intrigued and amazed at this field guide on insects. Growing up, my father had many field guides on birds and trees, those were the things he was interested in. And I picked up this insect field guide, and I sort of read it like a book. I read it, you know, beautiful color plates of these fascinating, you know, North American creatures that, you know, I'd seen around, but I'd never taken the time to think about them. So I was in New York City for my first graduate degree in museum education. So I did my next project on insects. And because I'd done that project on insects, I was eventually able to get the job at the Insect Zoo at the Natural History Museum. So I can say that that particular moment stood out for me as the time when I chose this particular kind of animals to focus on. Also because I was in a museum education graduate degree program, and there were many, many art history people around me, and my mother was into art history. I had a very strong feeling that that was not my passion, that I was not going to be a museum educator that was going to work in an art museum. And I just didn't care enough about art to cause other people to care about it, too. 
But what I did care about was the natural world, about learning about, in particular, insects, because people are super freaked out about them because of ignorance. And their first thought is fear and wanting to kill something. And the idea that I could learn about these things and impact people in a positive way to conserve animals, conserve habitats, to learn more about things. Sorry, it's a very, very long answer about that dragonfly. It's called the green darner, by the way. Well, I'm suspicious that many of us have some sort of a keystone moment. I mean, not everyone. I mean, some people, just these things grow on them slowly. But for many of us, there's this keystone moment of, wow, I really love this. I mean, for me, I mean, I'd never heard of physics. I didn't even know what physics was, but our high school offered physics, and I needed a class in my senior year, and so I took biology and then chemistry and then physics, and I fell in love with how the natural world behaved from a perspective of, you know, forces and underlying physical principles, and it sounds like for you that same moment kind of happened while you were walking down a street in New York City. Yes, I'm so happy I had that moment because I have been so happy and fulfilled and satisfied in my career. Um, I'll certainly not become the next billionaire in this kind of career, but I've found true happiness and found a true community of people. That's so important when people are contemplating careers is, can you work with these people? <laughs> you know, you, you need to love the people you're around. I mean, be intrigued by them, be stimulated by them. We all have to work collaboratively now. And I found a community of people that I could talk to and wanted to wanted to be around. And I know a lot of physicists and they're cool people. <laughs> They're fun to be around. So how did you shift from the Natural History Museum and thinking about insects and entomology? Was that in New York where that was? Uh, Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County is where I spent uh, many years ah. here. So New York City was just a graduate degree, but because it was a massive metropolitan area, I could not wait to get out of there. <laughs> so I made my <laughs> way west uh, seeking more open sky. <laughs> And really just made the transition from, you know, sort of a natural history environment, you know, sort of this heavy science and engineering environment, really just serendipitously. I just was work at some place for a few years and then always kind of looking at the next opportunity. And it, it wasn't for me necessarily wanting to move up the ranks and someday be running something. For me, it's what is the next really interesting place to work? And when I looked, worked at the Natural History Museum of L.A. County, for eight, almost nine years, when I would look around at the environment in Los Angeles and the other museums I could potentially work at or other organizations, I thought, you know, the only other places I want to work at are Caltech and JPL. And I, because I sort of had that goal and that those were the only places I was intrigued by, I would constantly check the websites. And if I knew people there would network and get to know people and the networking and the Constantly keeping that goal in mind is, is what got me in both of these places. So ending up at JPL and at Caltech was very intentional. You planned that. Correct. Or at least thought about it a lot. Right. Or, or was, was ready to leap, you know, was feeling nimble enough and willing to take the risk to interview and to just leap and definitely going out of my comfort zone. I mean, certainly when I took the job at the Natural History Museum, I knew nothing about entomology, and suddenly I was kind of placed in the role as an expert. And coming to the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, know nothing about planet Mars, which is my main kind of beat, so to speak, and be willing, you know, really willing to learn and to be pushed beyond things you don't know and have to learn and have this open mind like a sponge. We really want to suck in information. 
So you, you definitely have to be flexible enough that if you don't know it, well, you can learn it on the job. I mean, no one really who is interviewing people expects you to already have the huge skill set when you before you get into a job. They expect you to be flexible enough that you have some skills, but you've demonstrated the capacity to learn, the interest in learning, the interest in lifelong learning, that your journey continues once you get a job, that you're constantly looking to improve your skills. You're constantly looking to improve your mind. So, you know, I, I definitely think I was absolutely willing to dive in. So tell us a little bit about what you do there at JPL. Like, are you a science writer, a science interpreter? How would you describe yourself there at JPL? Well, I, I wear a, a variety of hats. I was hired originally to work with science museums. We have um, the Mars Exploration Program, which is a whole series of missions that's actually been running for the past 50 years, sending spacecraft to either orbit Mars, well, first fly by Mars, orbit Mars, land on Mars, and rove on Mars. So the Mars Exploration Program is based here and also managed by NASA. So I was hired to work with science museums. Science museums will have exhibits about Mars. Science, you know, Air and space museums want to exhibit uh, spacecraft models about the next Mars mission that's coming out. They might have public programs and they need scientists or engineers to speak. A science museum might have something like a robotics challenge where they need mentors or judges for a robotics challenge. So I was really hired to interact with the museum community and provide them anything they need that relates to Mars or robotics or the work we do here at JPL. And since then, my role has expanded, and I do things for our public website. So I write typically kind of fun little light features. For example, we are putting together a whole sort of micro website about all the funny, strange sort of conspiracy theories that people come up with on Mars. You know, people see shapes in Mars rocks, and then they write to us and say that, you know, are you sure this is not the face on Mars, or is this a crashed spacecraft, or I'm pretty sure NASA is hiding the fact that this is, you know, clearly the remains of a spaceship on Mars. So we're putting together a fun website where, you know, we're meeting those people where they are. We're taking those funny pictures and demystifying them and saying that people were, were very sorry that this is not a spacecraft and we're not hiding anything, that the wind makes these. These are called vent effects. And we make it educational. So I, I do things for the web. I organize big public events where we have, for example, the California Science Center in downtown Los Angeles is having a big event next weekend where several NASA centers from across our country are bringing exhibits and spacecraft models to the California Science Center to celebrate the opening of a new space exhibit. So I'll bring some spacecraft models, including a full-scale model of our next lander that is scheduled for launching to Mars in March 2016. So I'll bring that spacecraft model and we'll tell people about this next mission. And I have fun visualizations about Mars. There's constantly findings and science that are coming out about Mars and new missions that are being planned. So my job is to take all those things and make them understandable and compelling for the public, either through events, through activities at museums, through features on our website. I might help our videographers put together documentaries about Mars. So anything that takes planet Mars and brings it out to the public. You know, we are a taxpayer-funded organization. We want people to know what we're doing. We want people to be interested and engaged and support what NASA does. And I'm, you know, one of many people at JPL that has that kind of job. And other people interpret the, you know, other solar system missions. For example, we have a spacecraft going into orbit around 
Jupiter in July 2016. So there are people that are going out and talking to the public about this Juno spacecraft. There are other people who do outreach for missions that are orbiting our moon because there's still active research happening on our Earth's moon, just not people. I call it a public outreach, public engagement sort of capacity. And it you have to be very, very flexible. I mean, I never know what I'm going to be doing from day to day. Today I hosted a group of art students from a university. They're doing projects on Mars. But next week I will be testing a new little robotic rover that we're going to use for outreach that we commissioned this little rover to be built. We're going to be testing it. So it's a very, very varied job. But again, it's bringing Mars to the public. So I'm curious, because you mentioned that you didn't have a deep exposure to science and that that wasn't something that piqued your interest early on. What kinds of things were you interested in during your earlier education? And were there any clues about where you might eventually go? No, I really had no idea. I was interested in the natural world, but it it never would have occurred to me that I would have some sort of career that related to science. Again, because I, I believe I didn't have role models and my parents didn't put forth educational opportunities that related to the sciences. They certainly gave me an extremely enriched background. And, you know, we went to Europe and we went to the Philharmonic and we went to art museums and plenty of nature walks with my father and looking at birds. I just did not have any sort of sense that science would be a career that anyone in my family would have. So I I was interested in being a graphic designer or an artist of some sort. But then I, I found myself being very interested in anthropology and the study of cultures and then Art history kind of piqued my interest for a while. You know, I graduated with a degree in humanities from the University of Vermont. I didn't quite have a sense that my career would relate to any of those. However, I just sort of graduated as a blank slate and was sort of wandering around for a few years until I I really felt like I had no direction. And I actually went to a career counselor after my undergraduate degree to help me start zeroing in on, okay, what, what am I really interested in? And through a career counseling process, museum education sort of bubbled up because it became clear that I love to learn and that I love to somehow tell other people about things, but I did not see myself as a classroom teacher. There was something that just a little too monotonous in my mind that way. I just didn't see myself in a classroom. So what are the other places where you can tell people about things? And museums kind of bubbled up to the surface. And I really just called someone up in a science museum. I asked for the education department And I said, how did you get your job? And she said, I went to Bank Street College. I got this degree in museum education. I said, thank you. And then I called up that Bank Street College, and I went to that college. So it was sort of one of those weird things where I just picked up the phone and asked someone what she did. Then I did what she did and came down this path. Then I saw the dragonfly. Just listening to that, I'm curious. Somewhere in there, was it in that space or was it afterwards that you found this love of learning? I would say, you know, my parents did not role model anything having to do with science for me, but I I believe my parents very much did. I mean, they read a lot of fiction and nonfiction, a whole family of really dedicated readers. And my parents just always seemed interested in talking about many, many different things and reading new books and learning about things. My father loved history and was very interested in his ancestry and background and the Icelandic sagas. And there's just a million things that they were interested in and and seemed very open-minded. So I think I come from a family of people who are interested in learning and don't think it stops at school, certainly. Don't think it stops once you graduate college, that your mind just 
that cabinet door shuts and that's it. And, you know, my parents are still around and they are still intrigued and interested in many things today. So I think that is a wonderful thing that parents can do for their children is role modeling, being interested in things. And man, so many more things that we can be exposed to now and so many beautiful websites where you can just sit down and just surf around. I mean, just going to any of the NASA websites, of course, that's what... (laughs) plugging my own company, but man, I mean, you can just find out what's, I mean, there are astronauts orbiting 200 miles above the surface of the Earth, and what are they doing today, and what are the beautiful images of the northern lights they sent down yesterday, I mean, there's just so many interesting things to know about and and see, so I think my parents role modeled that for me, and I've just continued it, I mean, I will never stop learning, there's just too much out there. So tell us a little bit about your interaction with schools and museums and uh, other sort of educational environments from JPL. What, how do you communicate what you do with, uh, with these other more traditional places of education? I would say at NASA, our model is very much um, train the trainers. So we don't do that much stuff directly with children because there's you know only so many of us and a whole nation of students out there. But we are so interested in uh, creating a love and joy of STEAM in students, and so uh, have a variety of ways that we try and reach out to kids, some of which I do at JPL. Thank goodness for distance learning and things like Skype and things where we can do webcasts. So we, we reach a lot of schools through doing distance learning and webcasts, and we try as much as possible to get scientists and engineers in front of them. We really try to have interesting, non-stereotypical scientists and engineers, women, minorities, you know, young people, maybe someone who's disabled. I mean, we really try and have a variety of people so that we try and dispel some of the stereotypes of science as the bastion of white males. And we certainly try and have a two-way interaction where kids can ask questions, ask things that they're interested in rather than a lecture format. If we can, you know, prepare the students for who this person is and what they would be able to answer or talk about so the kids can be prepared to have thoughtful questions. Or maybe the kids are doing some sort of project on Pluto and they want to talk to a scientist who worked on a Pluto mission. We would really try and get get students connected via video conference or webcast with the people who are actually doing the work. Then they can actually see themselves in that role. They can really see that, wow, there are people that do this, and I'm talking to a live person who does it. So, you know, we interact with students that way. We certainly have many educational websites and many, you know, fun science demos and things that we put online and hope that students and teachers are able to access online or students are at home with their families. And we target students in many of the you know, sort of videos and visualizations that we do. Because again, we NASA is very interested in building our, our pipeline. So the people that are going to take the jobs in the future, and I forget what the statistic is, maybe you know it, Steve, it's you know something like 60% of the jobs of the future are going to be in STEM or STEAM-related careers. So there's a lot to do. Now, in particular, I work for Mars. We are planning, you know, if the government keeps supporting us and funding this effort, we are planning to have astronauts on Mars in the 2030s, you know, almost like the movie The Martian. We are working towards that right now. There are so many things that need to be figured out. We need so many people coming up through our career pipeline that need to figure out all these new technologies. 
to get humans to Mars in the next 20 years. I mean, it's, there's a lot to do. When I'm working with science museums, I get scientists and engineers to give public talks, get them in front of live audiences or audience on webcast as much as possible so that, again, museum audiences are hearing from the real deal. They're hearing from the engineer that designed that landing system that's going to put that lander on the surface of Mars or that person who will be operating the antennas that's, that are going to be talking to the orbiters. They're going to be talking to that rover, you know, that sort of thing. So, again, getting science, I broker those connections. So the Science Museum of Minnesota would call me up and say, we have this event coming, we would like a speaker, can you help us? And, you know, they'd either fly someone out to give a public talk or I would arrange something using Skype or some sort of thing for that person, you know, to be answering questions of the audience. Again, we really prefer a a two-way connection so that a person is not just speaking and showing pictures and slides, but they're answering questions and they're answering burning questions from the trenches, from the people out there. One thing that JPL does, which we just had two weeks ago, is we have an open house every year. This year we had 45,000 people who came in the 100-degree heat to see what we do. And a lot of it is people who are supporters of NASA. They love space exploration. They love what we do. But also parents who want their children to interact with scientists and engineers. They see their children's interest and they want to have them meet people who are actually doing this kind of work and inspire their kids. So we throw open the doors, we bring everything out of the closets, stick it on the lawn, and people come and see what we do, and again, interact, students and children get to interact with scientists and engineers, hear about their careers, hear what they're doing, what's it like to be a woman engineer, you know, can I meet an astronaut, that sort of thing. Did I answer your question? Yeah, it does, and I I just want to wrap that section up with one, one last question of are there specific things that you would recommend for parents or educators to encourage in teenagers who are expressing an interest in NASA, space exploration, engineering, science, things that you would recommend them to do or to encourage for their students? Sure. You know, everything starts with a Google search, <laughs> of course. I think finding out where students' passion lies. You know, it's, it, you know, is this kid going to be someone who's loves video games, hmm, maybe computer science would be interesting, and looking at careers in computer science. And, you know, you think, oh, computer science, it sounds so boring. Well, computer science is the software that makes rovers drive on the surface of Mars. We have computer scientists all over the place here. They all got their start as kids who love video games. Well, let's see, my kid loves to build with Legos. That's funny. All the mechanical engineers around here loved building with Legos as kids, and now they are building rovers and they're building spacecraft. So, you know, identifying what a, a child is interested in. Are they more of a tactile? Are they more of a dreamer? Well, that's funny. If they're more sort of creative visually, we have all sorts of data visualization people who take the raw data, which comes down as ones and zeros from either Earth orbiting spacecraft that are studying our climate or the Cassini spacecraft that's orbiting Saturn. Well, that's going to be turned into a visualization so that humans can understand it. And that's processed into a beautiful image, or that's processed into a video showing a plume erupting from Saturn's moon Enceladus. So there are many different aspects of STEM and STEAM careers that start with a child's fundamental interest. Maybe they're tactile. Maybe they are more visual. Maybe they're stronger in math. And they could be someone who is working out the trajectory of, okay, Earth and Mars are in these places in their orbits. When do we need to launch to use as little fuel as possible to land a spacecraft on Mars. 
Now, from there, identifying you know, sort of what kind of kid you have, then it's a matter of poking around NASA websites and finding internships. We have internships starting school, and then many internships that are for college level and above, and also finding summer camp opportunities. Science museums are my best bet. And then now there's a million online courses that are, what are those called, the MOOCs? Yeah, yeah the MOOCs. Yeah. Yeah, MOOCs and things like that. So there are online courses to be taken to at least direct your child and see what sticks. You know, for someone like me, I was I was a, a real late bloomer, and it, it took a long time for something to stick. But once it did, it, it absolutely did, and I had made the right choice in finding my passion and my career. And then certainly our entertainment, our edutainment time and dollars, they are scarce. But, you know, choosing places like the California Science Center, choosing to go see a spacecraft launch from Kennedy Space Center, choosing to go, you know, California Science Center is free. You just have to pay for parking and pay for a hamburger once you get there. But you could use your entertainment dollars to go to Kennedy Space Center, watch a launch, there's many, many exhibits there. There are public tours. You can see all the behind-the-scenes facilities. So there are many ways to immerse yourself in some of these environments. SpaceX is a company that is going to be building capsules that will take humans to the space station. They have an open house every year. They produce educational videos. They do outreach events, too. They're coming to our California Science Center space event next weekend. So the aerospace companies are also interested in education and outreach. They're doing that kind of thing. Now, I'm, I'm talking mostly aerospace here because that's what I'm in now. <clears throat> but if a child was particularly interested in chemistry, well, geez, there's the American Chemical Society, which has, you know, all sorts of career advice on their website. So it does, it takes some digging, but it certainly, um, there are so many ways that children can engage on a high school level and then help direct them once they start getting to college. So as we wrap up here, and we'll get down to these last two questions that we ask. You've mentioned a lot of resources that parents have access to that we didn't have access to maybe 20 years ago, and they're so uh, available online. In that environment, you know, thinking through your own educational experience, I mean, what does it mean in this digital age? What does that word educated mean? Educated to me means knowing enough to know what you don't know, having a healthy skepticism about what you don't know, and a healthy skepticism in the source of your information. And I'm, I'm thinking of the very educated people that we have today that are quite prone to misinformation because they're reading on the internet. So the smartest people I know vet their educational sources very carefully. They sort of understand, I think, who they should listen to and who might not have all the right facts and who might have an agenda. You know, what we need is unbiased, neutral information in the digital age. It's very hard. We have such a barrage of information coming at us. It's very hard to separate fiction from fact, to separate opinion from fact, to have the objectivity of fact. There's a lot of opinion and hearsay and cause and effect (laughs) guesswork. So I, I... I I think to be educated is to really be able to to vet the sources and go to the right sources for information. You know, it's not just knowing facts. It's knowing what to do with facts and how to vet them, how to, I hate to use the word curate, but how to to curate the information. I mean, there's, there's no shortage of information out there, but not all of it is accurate. So, the smartest people I know, you know, are, are careful with, with what's coming in, and they, they look at everything 
two times. <laughs> They're judicious with what's coming in. I, I think that you know people need to understand the the sources of things and and understand the the larger picture of where information is coming from. That's probably a very odd answer, but to touch on the I'm sort of thinking of you know of um you know sort of digital literacy and understanding what we teach high schoolers about. I mean, it's becoming ever more important, I think, for us to consider. Uh, consider our sources and consider how how information goes from out there somewhere into our minds and how we process that. And you're you're just beginning to touch on the edges of our last question, which is, you know, what is the purpose of an education? I think the purpose of an education, I don't believe it is for strictly for job training, because um, then nobody in the humanities would get any jobs. <laughs> you know, education. Mm-hmm. The purpose of an education is to create a population, create our, our citizenry, to be skeptical, to be open-minded with a diversity of beliefs and opinions, facts and truths. The most educated people I know are, again, are lifelong learners. They're not afraid to say they don't know something. They've never stopped learning. They'll never stop taking in education. And I think a great educator has a passion and a, and a love of learning. And so no matter what that person is teaching, they create people who are equally passionate and interested about anything. And it could be knitting for all I care. However, an educated person you know, knows what they don't know and, and hungers for more. So to me, education is really creating a person who is never going to stop growing. So when you get out of college, you're excited to join the workforce because you're excited to both contribute responsibly to society, but you're you're excited to learn more. And then you're excited to be ambitious and to grow and to take on more challenges. You're ready to take risks. So an education to me is patterns of behavior. It's patterns of, of thought. It's not facts and figures and, and coming out knowing how to do quadratic equations. That is helpful. That is certainly useful. However, quadratic equations don't help you if you don't have the social skills and the discipline and habits of mind that will help you in the workplace. We need to be turning out students that are collaborative, that understand how to use tools and how to work together in teams collaboratively using tools to do any kind of job, no matter what it is. And it could be working on a website. It could be working in a small business, it could be selling things, but discipline, habits of mind, wanting to learn and grow, to me, you know, are are what education should instill in people and that should instill in them for the rest of their lives. Excellent. I think we're going to wrap it right there. Thank you so much, Sarah, for taking some time to interview with us, for sharing your experiences with our audience. And, well, (laughs) you certainly caught my interest. You said a few things about JPL and NASA and some plans, and uh, now I'm going to have to go out on the Internet and uh, start curating some information because now I'm curious. (laughs) Go go search for Journey to Mars because that's all the plans, all the different ways that we are getting prepared to send astronauts, and we have so much work to do. (laughs) So it's exciting. You can see a roadmap for the future of all the different things we need to learn about, too, as an organization. It's an exciting time to be here, you know? We are doing our level best uh, tabletop inventing here to actually influence that. We, we want to see young people get very interested in creating the future, and we could probably have a whole conversation about that on its own. But thank you again, and if 
there are people from our audience that are interested to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Oh, certainly my um, JPL email address, which is sarah.s, as in Sam, dot marcot at jpl.nasa.gov. Totally happy to answer questions, especially career-related questions or resource questions or curious about something questions. That's so much fun for us. Excellent. Thank you so much, Sarah. I enjoyed it. And best of luck to everyone in their educational journey. Did you enjoy our discussion with Sarah? I love her excitement for science and education. And if you know a tech-savvy high schooler interested in becoming one of those innovators at JPL or Caltech, send me an email at stevecurdy at ttinvent.com. That's S-T-E-V-E-K-U-R-T-I at T-T-I-N-V-E-N-T dot com and mention R-I-F. I can't say too much, but we're hatching some great plans for 2016. Also, be sure to subscribe to the TTI podcast so you don't miss great upcoming episodes. Also, to find out more about inventor camps, after-school programs, training opportunities, and our premium innovation fellowship program for high school students, visit inventingzone.com. Don't wonder about the future. Sign up, and we'll help you create it.